Uh, so can you just start by saying your name and what your position is? My name is Catherine Green, but everybody calls me Kath, and I am head of the Clinical Biomanufacturing Facility at the University of Oxford. And you've got another hat as well, haven't you? I also am an Associate Professor in the Wellcome Centre for Human Genetics, and I'm a Senior Research Fellow at Exeter College. At Oxford we always have multiple hats. <laughs> Um, so first of all, tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, I, obviously, we don't have time for your entire life history, but if you start from your earliest interest in science, how, how did you get to be where you are now? Yeah, that's a good question, and I don't know if I know the answer, because I think I always just was interested in science as a child, and so to go and do science at university was an obvious thing for me. I don't think I knew it was a job at that point. It was just something that I thought was interesting. Um, so I did natural sciences at Cambridge, and then a PhD in London, and then a postdoc in Paris. And throughout all that time, I was interested in human genetics and how human genomes change over the course of your lifetime, so where cancers come from, effectively. Um, I continued that when I came back to the UK in the University of Sussex, and my very first um, group leader position back in Cambridge, funded by Cancer Research UK, so still doing cancer research. When I moved to Oxford in 2012, I was still doing cancer research, thinking about what chromosomes are like and how chromosomes change. And in doing that, I grow a lot of human cells in culture, manipulate human cells and do the kind of lab techniques that you actually need to do to be able to grow vaccines. Um, also did quite a lot of science management, managing other people's teams um, and running some aspects of my team as a business inside the university. So when the clinical biomanufacturing facility needed a new head, the head of department asked if I would step in for a bit just to guide it through six months while they looked for somebody else. So just tell me about the clinical biomanufacturing facility. What is it? What is so it it's a fairly unique part of the University of Oxford. Not all universities have one. It's a GMP manufacturing facility and GMP stands for Good Manufacturing Practice. So that is the set of rules that you have to follow if you want to make a medicine that can be used in a person. So a really strict set of regulations and requirements set by law in the UK coming from European legislation. So any medicine that you use, whether that's a paracetamol that you buy in Tesco's or a cancer drug that you're given as an experimental medicine treatment has to be manufactured under these really strict regulations. So pharmaceutical companies, drug manufacturing companies follow these rules. And we, in our little facility, there are 25 of us in the team, also follow these rules in a little building that you won't have ever noticed around the back of the Churchill Hospital site. Um, and so we, as a university, are able to make batches of medicines to use in clinical trials in people for the first time. So that's great as a university. The idea is that we can take innovations that are created in the university research labs, transition them into a product that can be then tested in people for the first time to show that they work and then that can then go on and seed innovation in healthcare. We mostly have been making vaccines over the last, the team over the last 20 years. And I'm sorry, did you give me a date for when you started? So I started there in 2018, mm -hmm. initially as an interim six month cover just to help out. Um, but I discovered that I loved it. I love the people. I like the mission that real translational idea of taking ideas that come from the university and converting them into something real and a real treatment that's really meaningful, but still in a scientific background. Yeah, it's still an experiment. It's an experiment that is in people, but it's still an experiment. We don't know what the outcome's going to be at the beginning of starting a clinical trial. So after the six months, I went to the head of department and said, can I stay a bit longer? And we were doing okay, so he said yes. And I've been there ever since. Um, I do it only half-time. I run my research team in the Welcome Centre half-time and I run the clinical biomanufacturing facility half-time. And your, your research team, are they still working on cancer? Yeah, related? cancer genetics, yeah. chromosome instability um, and mechanisms by which your genome changes during your lifetime. So, um, let's just switch to talking about COVID. Oh, it's all you... I talk about. <laughs> I know, I'm afraid so. <laughs> uh, can you remember where you were when you first heard about it? So I thought about this a lot um, because Sarah had heard about it very early because she is an infectious disease. This is Sarah Gilbert. Sarah Gilbert. Sarah Gilbert 
realised very early that this was a, an outbreak in Wuhan province in China because it's part of her job to pay attention to um, outbreak pathogens. But I don't do that for a living. My job is to manufacture things at a much later stage normally of the development pipeline. So I would have heard about it at the same time as most of the population of the UK did, which would have been on a TV news broadcast. And I don't think they happened till what, the 3rd, the 4th, the 5th of January, as we were coming back. Mm, mm. And it didn't seem very serious at the time. It was a novel pneumonia outbreak in China. It made a few bulletins. And then every day, the bulletins got more serious, mm, didn't they? Mm. And the first meeting I had with Sarah about it was, I think, the 22nd of January when she called me to her office and said, Kath, I'm go I've designed the vaccine. We're going to start making it. There's a possibility your team will need to be involved soon. What are your feelings about that? <laughs> and had you worked with Sarah before? Yes. So, as I said, one of the things that we do is kind of science as a business. So, manufacturing medicines to this extremely stringent regulation that you need to be allowed to put them in people is an expensive thing to do. I need to buy very high quality ingredients. We need to monitor everything that we're doing. There's a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of checkings. There's a lot of additional people needed. Um, and we have to do it in a sterile environment. So I need a specialised facility with plant. Um, and so the way that that works within the university is I effectively have customers. So the, the academic scientists that have the ideas for the new medicines are my customers. They get funding from grant funders so that might be the Wellcome Trust that might be Cancer Research UK that might be the government via the UK Research and Innovation um, uh, Network and they will then contract me to manufacture something for them so my team prior to I started in 2018 and since have made many vaccines in the past for Sarah and the probably the one of most interest to the COVID project is that we had previously manufactured for Sarah a vaccine against Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, MERS, which is another coronavirus, it's in the same family. And that was the basis by which Sarah could move very quickly how to make a vaccine against a new coronavirus because she already had manufactured and tested a vaccine against a previously existing one. So how did you react when she came to you? And said yeah, <laughs> so when she came to me, my first question is because I run a business, I'm doing science as a business. So my first question was, yeah, fine, of course, we could help you with a new manufacturing project. Who's paying for it? Where's the money coming from? And obviously, at this stage, there was no money. There was no government task force. There was nothing set up. And we didn't, on the 22nd of January, know how serious it was going to be. So I would say, to be honest, my first response is, yeah, we could assist you, but I don't know if we're going to because I have funded projects, I have things that I'm making. We were in the middle of making an Ebola vaccine. It was funded, it was rolling. Commitments were made to that project. So I think we sat down and she said, could you do it? And I said, yeah, well, what we'll do is we'll draw your plan. We'll draw a plan at how fast could we go, but on a theoretical basis, I did not immediately commit to a manufacturing slot because that didn't feel like the right business decision at that time. And then we kept on talking and every day the situation deteriorated and every day it got to be a bit more easy to make the decision to stop making the Ebola vaccine and start on a coronavirus vaccine. But it, it was something that grew, it transitioned over time to that decision. Mm -hmm. um, and so once you got to making that decision, what did you then have, have to do? How, how did you get started? So it's, it's something that we know how to do. So this is one of the reasons. So Sarah had worked with coronaviruses before and making vaccines against outbreak pathogens is what she knows how to do. And manufacture, manufacturing them, we know how to do. We've done it, my team, I mean, not me, my team are fantastic at making these adenovirus vector vaccines. So Sarah has to give us a piece of DNA it's a piece of DNA which is synthetic in that it's been ordered by Sarah and Teresa Lamb. They've designed it and they've sent it off for synthesis. And then that gets shipped to Sarah's research lab. And what's that bit of DNA got in it? So it's got the coding sequence for the spike protein, for a coronavirus, for the spike protein, the now famous spike protein. And the reason that they chose the spike protein to use is A, because it's on the surface of the... SARS-CoV-2 virus, and also because that was what they had used for MERS. 
So they knew that was likely to be the thing that made a good vaccine. But it's called an adenovirus vaccine. Is it stuck, yeah. stuck on to the adenovirus? So no. So our, this is an adenovirus vectored vaccine because our delivery package is an adenovirus. But it doesn't have the spike on that adenovirus. It has the code for spike inside it. So it's just the FedEx package, the adenovirus, and inside are the instructions. So the adenovirus vaccine works that it, it attaches itself to one of your cells when we inject the vaccine into you, and it inserts the instructions to make spike into your cell. Your cell then makes spike and puts it on its surface, and the immune system detects that as something new and unusual and unwanted and springs into action, protecting you against future recognition, not protecting you against future recognition, that's not right. So I've got to go to that again because that's not right. So the... Protecting you against future infection because... It yes, because you've seen it before. Yeah. You've already seen it before. Yeah. So your immune system is mobilised to be able to detect it. So the adenovirus is just a delivery system yes. in the same way as the Pfizer-BioNTech mRNA lipid particle is the delivery system to get the code in mm. so once the code is into the cells they work in the same way those two delivery systems yeah so we know how to make that delivery system we do it all the time we've done it for MERS we've done it for plague we've done it for rabies we've done it for Zika malaria influenza TB so that's good that's a platform we can do this we've done it before mm. so we just have to get the DNA from Sarah's team that codes for the entire genome of the adenovirus including the code for the spike and then we have to put it into our controlled laboratory conditions and turn it into vaccine. And you do that by allowing the virus to copy itself inside special human cells that are modified to enable the adenovirus to copy itself. Because the adenovirus is designed such that it can't copy itself in the cells of you or I when it's used as a vaccine. It can only copy itself in the laboratory environment in these specialised modified human cells. So you say um, that Sarah gives you a piece of DNA. Yeah. I mean, there must be more than one piece of DNA. But anyway, you start with something very small and then you have to scale it up until you've got enough yes. to use in a trial. So she you gives me a few to... nanograms of DNA, which will be billions and billions and billions of, of molecules of DNA, all of the same sequence. And the sequence is 40,000 or so letters long, double-stranded. But it is just a chemical string of DNA letters. And we have to get that into cells for the first time because when you put that code into a human cell, it can it contains the instructions for a virus particle to self-assemble because that's how viruses work, yeah? Their code encodes all the instructions to make a virus particle and those particles self-assemble. So the first thing you have to do is get it inside cells. So that's a process called transfection. It's a routine process in research laboratories. And we do exactly the same process as you would do in a research laboratory, but just with a lot more care and with a lot more expensive reagents and with a lot more paperwork. And then those first cells into which the code is put start making virus particles and then that pops those cells and the virus particles are released. So we can collect them and then we've got a few tens of thousands of virus particles from that first infected cell and we can collect those and put them onto more cells to infect and each one of those will receive some virus and then replicate copy some more virus so that's made more vaccine and so then we can put it in a bigger flask yeah people listening this virus is the adenovirus it's not the covid virus yes it's the adenovirus with a little bit of that's right of so the, the vaccine is DNA. an adenovirus and we don't need ever to see the real SARS-CoV-2 virus for us to be able to make a vaccine against it. We don't need to receive a swab from an infected person. We don't need to be able to grow that dangerous pathogen in our research labs. We just need an email from a clinician scientist who has had a patient with the disease who can swab the nasal passage, sequence the genome and send us literally a text file that contains C's and A's and G's and T's. So that's really good because it means that we don't need to work in a regulated environment to handle dangerous pathogens. We don't need to learn a lot about the pathogen to be able to grow it to make it into a vaccine. We can just take the code and put that into the adenovirus. So it makes the, the design process and the manufacturing process very, very much easier. And the same is true for the other type of vaccine that obviously is in the news a lot, the mRNA vaccines. They also can just take the code. They don't need the actual pathogen.
So you started with a few nanograms. Yep. How, how much did you need to get going? Yeah, so we need a few nanograms to do that oh, first so, transfection. Yes, but then you've got to. And then we, we amplify the culture. So we start in a very tiny culture, which would be about the size. So at first, the cells grow in, in layers like. Um, patio like your patio yeah like all side by side next to each other in a mono layer and the the first piece of dna will go into one cell and when that bursts it releases virus particles to insect, infect the cells around it and that's in a a, a a vessel that's about the size of the end of a pencil a really small vessel and from there we then go into a larger vessel eventually to a vessel the size of a postcard, eventually to a a vessel that's the size of like 10 postcards stacked on top of each other like a book. And at that point, we've got enough to start to do some real testing on it to make sure it's correct, to make sure it's sterile, and to start to get some idea of what the yield and the productivity will be. So that's to produce a thing that we call the starting material. And that we use an analogy there. It's like the it's like the mother of a sourdough starter or something. So from that, all the rest of the vaccine will be born. And so we made that in the lab round the corner from here by the end of March. So how that was was that fast? Can yeah, I mean we worked really hard because by the time the DNA came to us about the middle of February, it was clear this is no longer a. A, a research exercise this is no longer a hey let's just prove for fun how fast we could make a vaccine against a new disease yeah by the end of january um confirmed cases in france by early february confirmed cases in the uk um all over southeast asia cases and death rates start information start to come out about how serious this might be so by the time the dna came to us beginning at middle of february we had already started to tell the owner of the Ebola project, looks like we're going to have to stop Ebola before we get to the end. We froze it all, we didn't waste that project and we reinvigorated it later in the year. So we do also have the Ebola vaccine that was scheduled, it didn't go to waste. But it just got delayed a lot because COVID took priority. So yeah, so we, we the starting material, that initial, about a Coca-Cola can's worth of full, that will go on to be the seed stock for the entire global vaccine supply. And that's crazy, that's two billion doses now, all came from that coke cans worth that we had in my team in in march um and then we do a lot of tests on that starting material to make sure it's absolutely perfectly good and that's then what we use to seed the gmp manufacturing the manufacture of the stuff that's going to be the first batch that's used in trials and also um the stuff that we will use to make larger batches in other in other manufacturing sites and eventually that we then ship to astrazeneca to make the global supply right private jet oh <laughs> there is a story about yes. a private jet so what, uh, yeah so, so one of the people we ship the material to so we normally make my team would make normally up to a thousand doses because we're talking about making medicines that are going to be tested in people for the first time and so those are phase one they're called clinical trials they're just to normally assess that there's no extreme adverse reactions to those in people so they're normally done in healthy volunteer individuals participants that come and are closely monitored and we do a few people and then maybe a few more and then maybe a few more but you'd be looking a maximum of say a hundred people in a phase one clinical trial normally so if we make a thousand doses that's plenty to get us across that stage but already by the time we were considering doing the manufacture for the covid vaccine andy pollard and the clinical trials team were starting to think big because this is march and you know lockdowns the 23rd of march so it's getting really serious by now so as we're just starting to ramp up our initial very small scale manufacturing andy is saying well we're going to need a trial with twenty thousand people we're going to need a trial with thirty thousand people and we know we can't make enough vaccine here in oxford in my tiny facility to do that so we had arrangements set up with another manufacturing site in italy called advent and they've made adenovirus affected vaccines before for us and for other people and they can just do it on a slightly larger scale you pay them a lot of money and they make you a product so sarah had set that up right at the beginning that they would be able to do that manufacturing in parallel to us maximize the amount we could get we could probably go slightly faster but they could get more maybe with a three-week delay so perfect we've used all ours up and then we can use theirs 
But it turned out that obviously Europe was shut down, yeah? So we started our trial the 23rd of April using doses that we had manufactured. And by, I mean, by the end of April, Andy Pollard's team, who are, were remarkable throughout the clinical trials team, had, you know, they'd recruited so many people to the trials so fast that the doses were going to be all gone. So we needed to get doses in from the advent batch, which was just about ready. But there's no flights and no commercial flights available from Italy to London because everything was shut. We were trying to figure out how to get it. Can FedEx drive trucks? But the borders were shut. Can we drive a truck and then change trucks and then change? We're trying to figure it out. Um, and one of the joys of this whole project was working with a, a team that really came together and a lot of diversity in the team, people from different backgrounds with different ideas. And we were just stuck. How are we going to get this vaccine from Italy? It's not possible because it has to be temperature controlled. It has to be mapped. It has to be under, you know, because it's a medicine. One of our team just said, you do know you could charter a plane. And obviously we didn't know you could charter a plane. <laughs> I mean, in the... Theoretically, we knew you could charter a plane, but we don't, you can't actually do that, can you? And it turns out you can. If you have funding behind you, you can call some company at the airport that have small private jets with pilots in, and you can say, will you please fly me a package from Rome to London tomorrow? And, yeah, there's a five-figure fee attached to that. But when you're testing a vaccine that might be of global importance, you can find five-figure fees. You can't usually spend that kind of money on transport in a clinical trial but under these circumstances you can you can find the money and you can justify spending it mm. Mm. yeah yeah so having um once once you'd got that far you've done your bit could you sit back and <laughs> well to some extent yeah so my, it is true that we were in some ways lucky so we were involved so intensely from end of january to the end of June, getting that batch, that first clinical trial batch done, and then liaising with Advent and getting the the vials, the logistics of getting the vials labelled, because that's a manufacturing step, has also quite tightly regulated, shipped across, so 18 sites in the UK, whole need, hand, yeah, easy? all of it. So our process is extremely manual, okay. and it's all done on frozen vials at minus A, so on dry ice. So there's just a lot of logistics and complexity of dealing with that. But then after the kind of phase two was started, the advent material was finished with, our material was gone. I mean, it was gone really rapidly. So yeah, I mean, our team didn't then have much more involvement. Our job was to get that first stuff done as quickly as possible without sacrificing any quality because you also need to just be as fast as possible. The faster you can immunize your first volunteer, the faster you have the data that is telling you whether they're making antibodies, whether they're making T-cells, and eventually whether that vaccine is effective. So we were the first line, the rapid response unit, and other people then came behind us doing the rest of the project, which is scale up, can you make a lot of it? And then when AstraZeneca came on board, really a lot of it, and how do you make it globally? But that's not that's not our job. So we then have to go back to doing the other things that we do, which is the Ebola vaccine, and now Nipah virus and other emerging threats. And that's, yeah, hopefully we don't. How do you spell Nipah? N-I-P-A-H. It's one of the ones that, so I am not an infectious disease expert, um, but I have friends who are, and they tell me that Nipah is the one that you we should be most worried about. We do not want to... A Delta variant of Nipah, something which can spread rapidly in human populations, because it's a devastatingly lethal virus. So, so on our watch list, and we're currently making with Sarah Gilbert a, a vaccine against it. Mm. So, mm. hopefully, we'll have a stockpile soon to give us some reassurance that pandemic preparedness is is going forwards for that. So, how was all this for you personally? <laughs> It's weird, isn't it? Because it, it, it was a bit of a blur. So it's hard to kind of sometimes think, you look back at your notes or you look back at your diary or you look back at your WhatsApps and say, you know, what was I, because people ask me. I was just working, I was working all the time. Um, my daughter was at key worker school. How old was she? She was nine, 10 now. Um, so our school obviously it shut at the beginning and then the school figured out how to arrange key worker school and that was quite a stressful thing to decide to send her into because although we I needed to go to work 
of course what you are doing because we didn't really have any public health measure nobody really knew anything so the school was open for key workers first of all we had to figure out whether we would qualify as key workers because we're academic scientists so we had to get put on the list because there was a list doctors and nurses but not scientists but soon scientists working on COVID projects were added to the list um, and but obviously what you are doing is so I'm sending Ellie into school into a group of people whose parents are key workers so who are likely to be nurses and doctors and so what you're doing is actually sending your child into a relatively high risk situation if there's going to be any COVID anywhere it's likely to be in healthcare workers at the beginning of a pandemic and obviously she has to come home with me every night so by putting her in key worker school I definitely was increasing my risk of catching it and increasing my risk therefore of taking it into the team which would have been the worst thing to do because we were the only people in the world that knew how to make a COVID vaccine at that point so it was a hard decision to make that but you as many of us at those early stages of the pandemic, there weren't many choices available to us. I don't have my mum and dad locally, and even if I did, I couldn't possibly have asked elderly parents to look after a child who was going into key worker school. It was hard. So there's a lot of juggling to do that, and I'm separated from my husband at the time, ex-husband now, so he was doing half the day, so that was good. So on half the days I had real freedom to work. But then I'm very glad that I had Ellie because she was the only person I could see because as a single person living alone, I didn't have anybody in my household. So she was my only like non-work human contact. And at work, we were masked and distant because we knew we couldn't afford if one of us got COVID to spread it. So we were rigorous about social distancing and masking from the very beginning. And so it was a weird time because I was completely isolated from social contacts and working really hard with no outlet but then the other so that should be really awful and stressful but we had a mission and it's surprising I think how far that drive you know having a good thing to do can get you through some really tough times so some of my friends who worked in hospitality had a really tough time because they had nothing to do and so we were really busy so that helps you I think get through some difficult times having a mission Mm, mm. And did you find that among all your colleagues? I mean, did you have to set up any kind of systems to take care of the well-being of the group? It was so hard because we were all trying to keep away from each other so as to minimise risk of transmission. But obviously in the university environment, you know, people are very well paid. People, lived in shared ha- people live in shared houses. A lot of my staff are very junior. Some people have caring responsibilities, elderly parents, at-risk people. And so some people were very nervous about coming to work. Some people travel long distances on public transport. And yeah, balancing the needs of everybody while trying to deliver the project of your life in a timescale that has never been done before. Yeah, it was really challenging and some people really struggled. And we, we lost, so some team members left the team after COVID. And I think it was, it was sometimes too much of an ask. It was... It was a, a big challenge. I have a very strong friendship group in Oxford. And so some, you know, I could call people and teams people and they would leave me little presents. You know, if they knew I was feeling down, my best mate Sally or Stephanie would, would just put a bunch of daffodils in my porch or a bottle of wine. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of people, if you don't have that when times get tough and you're alone, I think it, it can be very challenging mm. and it's something we need to think about, you know, because if there's going to be another pandemic, nobody had thought about any of that before, had mm. they? Mm. How do we keep social structures intact? It's hard. Mm. Mm. I don't have solutions to it, but I don't think it, it went always very well and certainly different people struggled more than others. Mm. Mm. And did you actually have any infections in the team? We had... I think so we had a few people that's obviously there wasn't very much testing at the beginning <laughs> so we if people had was had, was symptomatic they just like colds and cough persistent cough so we had people that were off for a bit I think we had a couple of cases but no confirmed transmission events at work so people then self-isolated and stayed off and we didn't then have them having passed it on at work which is all you can ask effectively mm. that means what we're doing at work is going okay and we we, we lost downtime for people often because they had to self-isolate because household members had tested positive right. then the whole house had to isolate mm. Mm. and that's difficult when you've got a small team with really specialist expertise losing one team member sometimes was really problematic for us mm. Mm. so did you yourself ever feel personally threatened by the possibility of catching it 
young enough, I'm 46. I think I'm young enough that I always thought if I caught it, I'd be fine. But my parents are in their mid to late 70s. And so I did experience through them that real fear that I think it's it's not wrong to say, mum and dad will listen to this. I don't think it's wrong to say they were, they were frightened mm-hmm. because it is an extremely dead... I mean, I know that the case fatality rate is 0.1%, but that's a lot. And more than 5 million people now have died globally. Um, and so the, the fear is, is a justified fear, particularly at the beginning when we knew very little about transmission routes. And so taking precautions really did impact on your life. And so you felt fearful. You didn't know if you needed to wash your groceries. You didn't know. And there wasn't good information out there because nobody knew. So it's reasonable to take extreme precautions, I think. Um, so I, I think myself, I wasn't concerned because I feel myself to be robust but I would say that I have experienced that through people that I love and it is a real, true thing and rightly, rightly so. It was a fearful time. What did you do to stay sane when you weren't working? So, I mean, for, from Jan- end of January to June, we were working, but you can't work all the time. We had family Zoom baking. So it's weird. So my mum and dad live in Kent and my sister's in London. And I, I wouldn't have classified us as a close family. And we don't see each other frequently. Uh, we all get on fine. But probably we get on fine because we don't see each other frequently. <laughs> but because mum and dad were really self-isolating, so they weren't seeing anybody, um, and I was working all the time going slightly mad, we said, right, let's, let's teach mum and dad to use Zoom and let's at least chat once a week, all the family together, so Francis doesn't have to worry about them. I get some, you know, outside influence and mum and dad get to see the grandkids. So we did a few Zoom chats and then we thought, well, we can't just do Zoom chats. We need to do something. So baking, mum loves to cook. I, I like to cook, but I'm not very good at it. My sisters is probably true too. So we were following the bake off a bit or finding a recipe that we could all do together. So simple things like we do a jam tart. So you know, like you used to do with your mum, just some pastry and some jam. I mean, we can even mess that up to be honest. But so we'd find something to cook together and then obviously eat it together afterwards or fail together. The gnocchi, we made Italian gnocchi, you know, the like mm-hmm. potato balls. Mm-hmm. No, I don't. I, I, I'm a good scientist, but I'm clearly not a chef. Because that is like, you make these perfect little dumplings and you spend all this time rolling them out and then you drop them in the boiling water and it just turns into potato soup. It's just... <laughs> I don't, we all failed spectacularly in sync. You could see us all drop these gnocchi into the boiling water and go, I think that's supposed to happen. (laughs) Yeah, so we did that and that was nice. And weirdly, once a week we did that. We would never speak to each other once a week. It brought us much closer together being enforced apart. It's weird, isn't it? (laughs) So... Back to other things that have never happened before. Um, I've got various, let's yeah, take these in this order. So were you personally involved in interacting with national bodies like the JCDI and the MHRA? I don't have to do that. Yes. I sat on a few calls at the beginning if they needed something specific um, of the vaccine task force, but I'm lucky enough not to be senior enough to have to be called into those kind of decision-making things. I just get on with doing my little job, making the vaccine and getting it into the trial. That's fine. That's fine. Um, so, yes, so we're talking um, less than a week after a new variant called Omicron was <laughs> we named. There have been other variants that have come up as yeah. the time has gone on. Did you have to get involved with thinking about possibly having to tinker with the vaccine? Yes. So we had... So, obviously, the first one was made against the original strain... Um, and like I said, because the design is done just by text file, if a new variant is detected, it's easy to know how to change the vaccine to match the new variant. Um, so knowing how to do it is, is routine. Sarah can just send off the new code to get synthesized and we just do it all over again. Same process as we did for the first one. So for some of the new variants, we have started that process. Let's prove that we can just to see how fast we can go. 
And then for one of the variants, we then did make a starting material. We, we made a few starting materials for the, for the early variants. And one of them we shipped to AstraZeneca and they manufactured it to GMP. And that went into clinical trials and that clinical trial is running. So that gives us information about what happens if you've had, say, two doses of the original and then you get a booster with a different one. Do you make different antibodies? Do you then start targeting? We need to know this stuff. So those are important for clinical trials. Um, and so we have the capacity to make new variants and we made a few. And then what we did was we taught AstraZeneca how to do it. So the process of taking the DNA and going through that small vessel, bigger vessel, bigger vessel, bigger vessel, starting material. And then obviously they have the process for making lots. So we spent uh, the latter part, no, the first part of this year, the first part of 2021, teaching AstraZeneca how to do it so that hopefully we now don't have to. Um, Sarah has already ordered the sequence for the Omicron. We don't know if we're going to proceed with that, but you might as well order it so that if in a week's time it looks like we need to, either we will make it or AstraZeneca will. And that depends on lots of data that we have yet to see. Um, and the other thing that um, came ha happened, well, there are several things that happened, but uh, one of them was that you found yourself doing press interviews. <laughs> Is that something you'd ever had to do before? I had never had to do it. So scientists communicate science a lot, but we tend to do it, I think, in probably two contexts for most scientists. So we talk to other scientists at conferences. Oh, and uh, we lecture. So we, we give lectures to undergraduates. And we quite often do some school outreach or some public engagement at a science festival or at a primary school talking, you know, science is cool. This is what DNA looks like. We can extract it from a banana. Yeah. So we've done a bit of that. And so university staff have some ability to communicate science to some diverse groups. But yeah, what we found was we were we were a press story. We were of interest. You know, the Daily Mirror, the Daily Express, as well as the Guardian and the and the um, Times. Times want to interview us and do in depth pieces, not only about the science but also about ourselves. Um, and we, as a news article, not. And we struggled a bit. It was hard to do because it's a completely different kind of communication. And it has a different aim because it's, it's to try sometimes and get, sometimes it felt like the journalists were trying to get us to say something contentious it, because it makes a good headline, of course. But scientists, we like to say the truth. And if the truth is complicated, saying scientists don't know anything about COVID is not a good headline, <laughs> <laughs> which is what we should say. Mm. But the other point of that is that as scientists, we give a talk and then people put their hands up and ask questions, yeah? And, and it's part of our job to answer those questions. So we are trained to listen to the questions, think about the question, and then answer the question to the best of your ability. And so when a journalist asks you a question, what do you think? I think we have been quite programmed, normally we would tell them what we think. <laughs> and it turns out that's not necessarily what you should do because what we think isn't necessarily what we would think if we thought about, you know, but actually this is for a press interview. I'm not just talking to my mates in the pub or I'm not speaking to a scientific audience. So it, it, we, we had to settle into that. Did you have any training? Um, not much, to be honest. Um, and we had a lot of help. So there's a, a thing called the Science Media yes. Centre who were phenomenal at giving us you know, the confidence to, to try and speak the complicated truth, give the whole picture and not dumb down. And part of the, so Sarah and I wrote a book partly because we felt that it was, we wanted a longer format to try and explain some of the nuance and complexity about things without having to condense everything into a 200 word Piece. Mm. I, I'll get onto the book yeah. later on, but what, uh, one of the things I wanted to pick up was that one of the complexities you had to deal with was this business about the Italian um, uh, trial material, yeah. your trial material, yes. being slightly different yes. and how that affected the result of the, the clinical trial. It was, again, so that was a very complicated scenario. We had more than one efficacy outcome from the first set of clinical trial data. And yeah, it was because the trial was complicated. Um, we didn't just do exactly the same thing with exactly the same vaccine batch in all of our participants. 
And, and normally you would, you would have one protocol, we're gonna do just this thing, so we've got everybody the same. But we had to be making a vaccine in a pandemic. And so the trial, the remit of the trial, the reason for doing the trial changed as we were doing it. And the need to make more vaccine became apparent as we were doing it. So we ended up with yeah, different batches of vaccine manufactured in completely different ways. And so you're trying to, we were trying to measure the two vaccines made in completely different ways to see if they were likely to be equivalent to each other. And we used a variety of tests to do that. And it turned out that one of them doesn't accurately measure the concentration of the vaccine if you manufacture it in a certain way. Because they, they have different, they have different like physical properties depending mm -hmm. on the way that you've purified them. But the outcome of it was that effectively some trial participants didn't get the same dose yes. as others. So we had this data set that we couldn't make sense of. We knew the vaccines were safe, but it turned out that one of them we were giving at a lower dose than expected. As soon as it, it became clear, very obvious, it became obvious quite off early that that's what happened. They were getting a lower dose than expected, and then we could correct it and give them so the dose was matched. But we had a small group of participants that had received a lower dose. Um, and so it meant that we obviously had to separate those in the in the reporting because you want to report on groups of people that have been treated the same. So the, the trial, the first interim trial data when it came out was more complicated than other people's trial data had been because they'd only done one thing lots of times and we'd done multiple things. And so that, it was complicated. And so that's right, when the journalists like, why have you got two? To, to explain that is a complicated story and the journalists don't want to hear that. So it comes across as, oh, the Oxford scientists didn't know what they were doing. But that isn't right. What it was, was we were having to respond to an evolving situation. Um, but nobody wanted to listen to us about that. It was hard. Mm. And it had consequences because yes. it had consequences for people trust in in what we have done now everything that we've done in those trials is completely published and transparent so it's, it's all in there anybody can read it it's quite technical documents but if any of the journal journalists would have wanted to read it it's there we didn't hide anything but it was quite stressful at the time to know how to respond because we don't want to be seen to be like trying to justify ourselves, we just mm. want to explain this is what happened, this, yes, is, what, yes, this yes. is what did, we're not trying but to... you ended up getting, well, knocked effectively. Not, uh, yeah, we got knocked for a lot of things it felt like, but obviously of course that is part of journalism, that is part of transparency, you have to answer for what you've done, mm. so you have to be questioned on what you've done and you, you have, have to be able to answer. It was, a, it was, yes, because, but, but that's okay, you, the fact that I'm disheartened because, you know, just because I'd worked hard, <laughs> That's not good enough, is it? What matters is, is the data and the outcome. So the robust challenge is is reasonable and correct. So yeah, my us as a team feeling disheartened is of no consequence. <laughs> That's not what we should be worrying about. Oh, we can't upset the scientists. Of course you can upset the scientists. It's, it's, that's what scrutiny is, yeah. So you mentioned that you and Sarah wrote a book that came out <laughs> earlier this year in 2021. Yes. Uh, but you started thinking about it quite early on. Was it June 2020 or so that you started thinking I am fortunate enough to be a fellow at Exeter College. And when we were in lockdown over the summer of 2020, um, all of those social things that you do so were, were cancelled. So there's no dinners and there's no get-togethers. So the, the college was doing online Zoom events, like after-dinner science talk, after-dinner talks from the fellows who were experts in anything, you know, modern Spanish history, macroeconomics, vaccine development. So I gave a talk there um, on, on the story of, of, of us having just started the clinical trials. And one of the members of the audience, an, ex, an, an, an alumni, is a, is a publisher or in publishing. Um, and so it said, Kath, this looks like a great story for a book. And I was like, no, I can't possibly, I haven't got time. And it, he was quite persistent, kept on sending me emails, get Sarah and you to write a book. So eventually I sent an email to Sarah saying we could write a book. I said, this offer looks quite serious, they would help us. Because Sarah and I don't know how to write a book. Who knows how to do that? We're scientists. Um, so they gave us a lot of help. Um, they found us a publishing house. We had a great editor. 
Um, and it's just to write the story in long form, not only of the science, but also of placing the science in yeah what was happening mm. in the world, some of the politics, um, some of this, the stresses of funding, um, hopefully giving credit to all of our teams and all of the phenomenal amounts of help we got from all kinds of diverse sources, from philanthropists to volunteers. Um, it was a pleasure to write. It's an easy book to write because it is just writing down what happened to us. It's not the whole story. It's a little part of the story. And did you, so you, but you did write it, you didn't, it wasn't a ghost written? No, so we had, so we had a real, a lot of help from a lovely writer called Deborah Crew. So Sarah and I decided that we'd write half each and Deborah had suggested we could do alternating chapters on specific topics so we could tell the, so I would write the chapter on the manufacturing of the first batch because I know how to do that. Sarah would write the chapter on how do you get money for it? Yeah, because she knows how to do that. So we could then be quite focused on writing about things we knew. Um, and so, both Sarah and I just wrote content whenever we had time um, in relatively rough drafts. I write long-form prose. Sarah wrote some. I think she dictated some. Um, and then we sent that in to Deborah as our individual chapters, and she did a really hard edit. There's a lot of red pen. But that's okay. Scientists are used to writing collaboratively. Mm -hmm. So we write, we write scientific mm -hmm. publications all the time and they have multiple authors. So you write your first draft and you send it to your collaborators and they hack it to pieces. So we're used to that critic, like we're not precious about, oh, I formed that sentence perfectly. No, just take it out if it's of it. So a professional writer took out crude chapters, turned them into something better and did all that checking that we haven't repeated ourselves too much and that the narrative is there. And then we had a lot of help with just fact-checking, you know, the stuff that would be time-consuming to do. We were like, oh, Emmanuel Macron definitely said some annoying quote in March, can you find it? And and Deborah or the team at Hodder would find it. So they did the, they did the hard work. We just mm. had to write the content. Mm. Mm. So I recommend that highly. I think we were very <laughs> lucky to have such a great team behind us who really believed that this was a story people would want to read. Mm. And what's the reception of the book been? That's been amazing. We were we were Radio Four Book of the Week. I mean, imagine that. Uh, my mum was really happy. Radio Four Book of the Week. We were even a Sunday Times bestseller. I mean, which is nice. It means people have gone out and bought it. But I guess the the real nice thing is that people have read it. People send us nice messages. I get emails from people saying I read your book. It taught me something, and it you know made me cry. Apparently, we're quite good at making people cry. I think just because some of it was quite emotional. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I, I told, told you I, I read it and I was very impressed with how unfiltered it was. <laughs> I don't have a very strong filter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, have you, between you, received various kinds of honours? <laughs> well, it's been, a, it's been mad, it's totally mad. So first of all, we were recognised in the, some of the team, not all of the team, but some of the team were recognised in the Queen's birthday honours list. So you get this weird email from this weird address saying, like, don't tell anybody, but you have been recommended by the Prime Minister or something to be it's on the honours list. June 2020. Honest 
scientific community mm. um, and it's it's weird to have your name like specified there because it's such a team effort each of us individually I mean not Sarah Sarah did everything and Andy did everything but the rest of us is tiny little bits in that story but to go and accept an award and then to say look I'm accepting this on behalf of my team give them a shout out occasionally is I think a lovely thing to do mm. um, and it's humbling to get recognised in that way it's a lovely thing to Mm, mm. And we're doing very well. We're doing very well. Um, you answered that one. Ah, yes, I'm not sure if this question will annoy you or not. I mean, it's very apparent from the book that you work in a largely female team. Has that been your experience throughout your career? And if not, is it different? I am, um, yeah, I, I'm trying to think now about the numbers. I. So biological sciences at the kind of entry level and medium level is certainly well represented by women scientists. Um, I would suspect that in like wet lab science, we're at least 50%. That is not true in physics or chemistry, even at lower levels, even now, but representation is increasing all the time. At the professorial level in the university, women are still massively underrepresented, that's very clear. In the manufacturing team, I think we probably are more women than men. I, I mean, it's a small number, yeah, it's 25, so mm -hmm. what's the... But also... It's not statistically it's your, significant. Your close collaborators like Sarah and so the team, Linda so it's six PIs yes. that were on the initial team, and that's three and three. So that's Andy, Sandy, Adrian, me, Tess and Sarah, mm. were the team of six that came together to cover all of the parts of the expertise that we needed to go from design to scale up. And that's three and three. So you don't get more equitable than that. <laughs> we are all white. There are other metrics of diversity which are missing in the team, or at least there are lots of lots of other types of people we would like to be represented who aren't. Mm -hmm. At that level, but you, you talked about your team being very diverse. Um, so we have people from a lot of different countries and from a lot of different, different ethnic backgrounds. We're only a team of 25, but I mean, there are lots of groups that it is very clear are underrepresented mm -hmm. in, in science in general, and yep. we're no exception to that. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think I think we can move to a conclusion. So, has as far as you're concerned, that the work that you did on COVID and the COVID vaccine raised questions that you'd like to explore in the future? So it's helped us a lot because we have used it to move towards more modern manufacturing processes. Um, we actually didn't. For that first batch that we made in a hurry, we used our old fashioned process because we know how to do that and we needed it to work first time. But um, the scale up that was not done by, by us, but we have seen that in action, makes us realize that we need to modernize how we do things here, even at small scale. So we have learned a lot scientifically about what to do. Um, the regulatory space is changing, you know, how we will go about doing vaccine trials in the future, how we will go about manufacturing in the future has definitely changed. I've had a lot, a lot we've learned there. Um, what was the question? Uh, <laughs> whether it's raised new questions that you're interested in ex exploring in the future. And then, I mean, is the, is, are there any plans to expand the, the, the manufacturing facility? Yeah, so it's... There's also this um, uh, thing in Harwell. Vemic. So in terms of manufacturing, I really want to. We are, we are trying at the moment to negotiate capital investment to expand my facility. At the moment, I can only make one thing at a time. So when we had to do COVID in January 2020, we had to stop doing Ebola. Um, and that's a, that's a shame. I would like to be able to make more than one product at once. Innovative medicines are going to be the future of healthcare. If our mission is to provide patient benefit you know the more trials we can run with new things the better so i need to be able to make them faster so i'm i'm trying to pull all the levers that i can to get the capital investment in i need to expand the facility um, and the university being very supportive of that um, i'll need a bigger clean rooms i need a bigger team you know everything has to grow to do that it's complicated it's expensive um, and then across the uk yeah the government has realized that we needed 
capacity to manufacture vaccines in country because during a pandemic it's clear that supply chains get complicated um, protectionism gets complicated of course if you're making a medicine in a country there is some imperative to use that facility to supply doses to that country any politician is going to want to do that it, it, it doesn't feel equitable on a global thing but it is human nature so the government had realized we need good quality manufacturing capacity in the uk which was perhaps missing but our, both the private sector and the government are expanding the ability to manufacture complex biological medicines doesn't have to be vaccines um, flexible manufacturing that will enable us to respond to future pandemics or other health issues is a requirement and yeah so it's a that needs a combination between private sector and government support and i think the right noises are coming out of government about that we'll see how that pans out in mm. the next couple of years but you mentioned BMIC. what does that sound so BMIC is the vaccines manufacturing and innovation center at harwell which received it was was to be a purpose-built manufacturing uh, facility ready to make any vaccines that the government needed in a hurry. But Oxford University had some hand At the beginning, Oxford was involved. I don't mm. think they really are now. Yeah. Um, and I don't know the, the long-term yeah. future of that. Nothing to do with it, no, yeah. it's not to do with us. Mm. Mm. Um, and yes, this is the final one. Has, has the experience of, the whole experience, <laughs> changed your attitude or your approach to your work um, and are there things that you'd like to see change in the future that you haven't mentioned already? It's, it's been surprisingly hard to recover from it, I think, particularly because we've been still social distancing and masks and a lot of people working from home because our facility is very small and so our desks are too close together for the university to allow us to work at full capacity. Um, and so we've had this really interrupted year when we haven't been back as a cohesive unit. We were this incredibly strong team that got this huge thing done in a six month period. And then we were in limbo for a bit and we still haven't got that back. And I, I, I think that's something that we really have to work on as we now all try and move into this post pandemic. There's a lot of healing to be done probably and a lot of fixing to be done and I don't want us just to revert back to the old ways because some of the things that we learned were very valuable so some of the the collaboration that we did across teams was really effective remotely so zoom calls and teams calls because obviously most of this we were doing not in this being in the same room these big decisions were being made very effectively in meetings with lots of people that can be a really good tool but it has to be used well. So I just want to find ways to take some of the good stuff that came from, from the situation, some of the how to motivate a team, how to get stuff done effectively, but also lose some of the bad things about fragmentation and, and loss of that socialness that keeps a team together. Mm. I, I haven't quite figured out where we are yeah i think the whole thing feels a bit discombobulated i don't know how long it's going to take us to get back to normal i don't know if we ever will i don't know <laughs> not the same normal but you're back to working what you might regard as sensible hours yes mm. yes because you can't ask a person to be on mission mode all the time mm. because it's, it's it's too it's too exhausting people need to have time off tired people and hungry people make bad decisions. So the thing about when we were tired and hungry, we were making group decisions. It was hardly ever down to one person to make a decision. During that period of intense working, um, there was something very creative about the, the leadership that wasn't ever just from one person. Um, and so there was, you always had somebody sense checking you, I think, which I think was, is a really good way to work going forwards some collective decision making was was really good i think mm, mm. and how do you this is asking you to blow your trumpet which you don't really do but how do you feel about the fact that that little vial that you started with and has now turned into a vaccine that's vaccinated millions of people all over the world yeah yeah we're really proud of it i mean we are really proud of it i think it's okay to to say that we have a we have a picture of it so the very first, I told you the patio. So it's a patio of cells and you put the, that piece of 
virus on for the first time, a piece of DNA on for the first time, and it, that cell pops and then it pops the ones around it, so you get a hole in the patio. And we've got the first, it's called D8, because the, the wells are numbered, so D down and eight across. That's where it was in the grid. Um, and we printed it out, we've got it on the door as, we all, as you walk into the clinical biomanufacturing facility, D8 is there, so that is the one. That cell there was the start of now more than 2 billion doses delivered by AstraZeneca globally. That's, I think, 20% of the entire vaccine doses that have been shipped. Um, a large proportion of those going now to low-middle-income countries. Mm -hmm. Um, via the COVAX scheme and via the fact that AstraZeneca is still supplying not-for-profit. Um, to, to developing countries. To developing countries, the, I think the idea is in perpetuity. Um, I think they are transitioning to a small amount of profit. Next year, there'll be a transition to a, a small profit on supply to high-income countries, which is the reality of the world we live in. They're a global pharmaceutical company. They're not going to keep doing this for free forever. It's reality, isn't it? <laughs> I think that, and that was always agreed up front. I don't think it's anything that was a surprise to any of us. That's all the questions I have. have it, is there anything obvious that I've left out? I have no idea. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> um, no, I think that's fine. I... No, I think that's fine. Is it? Good. Lovely. Thank you very much indeed.